Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you're using your pew Bible, it is page 956. We're continuing on in this series in 1 Corinthians, as we are looking at a series we've entitled Course Correction, where the Apostle Paul is writing to believers in Corinth, and he is helping them to see and to discern some things that they need to make some corrective choices in. And he continues that even this morning. As you're turning there, I wonder how many of us have ever seen on social media or watched videos on YouTube or we have seen memes that have come out where people will say, I was today years old when I learned that. How many of you ever seen or heard that? I was today years old when I learned that. A couple examples I saw someone who, you know, posted a video and they were saying, I was today years old when I learned that your coffee cup that has a top on it, you can take it off and it's actually indented so it can serve as a coaster for your coffee. Uh, If you have a cup, go ahead and look. Be amazed that it has that, okay? Uh, That screwdrivers, the end, the handle of a screwdriver is purposely made so that you can attach a wrench to it to loosen screws that are too tight. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, Yeah. That juice boxes, you know how kids grab juice boxes and they squeeze them and the juice comes out. They have those side flaps for the purpose of kids being able to hold the juice box so that they don't squeeze it. Uh Uh-huh, right? Okay. That pots that have a little hole on the handle is for you to put your utensil in that you're using instead of putting it on your counter and get your counter all messy. Is the hole there that holds, you know, the end of whatever utensil you're using so that you don't have to worry about getting your counter all dirty. Okay, these are impressive things, I know. Um, How about some phrases? Phrases that people use and they have no idea how they came to be or why they use them. Did you know that when people tell you, hold your horses, how many of you have ever said that? Hold your horses. Um, The reason people tell you that is because they want you to be stable. Mm -hmm. That the first episode of a TV show is called a pilot because it's the first time it is on air. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That the phrase, be there or be square, is because if you're not there, you're not around. Yeah. That when someone tells you to break a leg in an audition, it's because they hope you end up in the cast. Your world is being rocked, I know. That riding shotgun is an expression that refers to the passenger of an old-fashioned stagecoach who sat next to the driver with a shotgun to protect the attackers and ro- from attackers and robbers along the way. So you say, I'll ride shotgun. It would be because you'd literally have a shotgun to be able to blast people that would want to rob you in the stagecoach. Um, these are all some interesting, <laughs> I think, things. Um, and statements sometimes that we use or phrases that we use that maybe without any thinking, we have no idea what we're even saying or why we're saying those things, but it just makes sense. And there's so many more we can get to. And I share that with you today, not because I wanted you to leave from here thinking about those great statements and their meanings, but because I think sometimes the same thing can be true within the church that we use statements or phrases and we really don't understand the true meaning behind them. And I believe we come to such a phrase that is oftentimes adopted and used in the Christian community and in the church family that sometimes we misunderstand its true meaning. And that phrase is the weaker brother. Say that with me. The weaker 
brother. How many of you have ever heard someone use that in some format of not offending the weaker brother? How many of you have ever used that or said that or heard that before? Many of you are lying because I know most of you have heard that, okay? Uh, and sometimes it can be really confusing and used in the wrong context for what Paul the Apostle was addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And so I want us to look at this phrase in understanding the weaker brother, and I believe in doing so, it will help us in our perspective as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord and encouraging to one another as believers in Christ. Let's look at the passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Uh, You can follow along as I read. Paul's writing and he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence in that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. As we look at the passage this morning, Paul is going to continue addressing questions that the Corinthian believers had delivered to him previously. And as Pastor Butch has mentioned the last couple weeks, we don't necessarily have those questions specifically spelled out for us, but we can elude from Paul's responses and reactions and answers what those questions entailed. Maybe not the specific question, but we know the subject matter of those questions. And so the issue or question that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is, is it okay to eat food offered to idols? Now, again, that isn't necessarily the specific way the question was worded, but they're asking Paul questions in regards to food that has been sacrificed to idols. Is it okay? So let me give us an understanding of of what was going on here culturally. Um, in, in this time period, both the Greeks and Romans, they worshipped many gods and had many idols. And so there was a pagan practice of offering meat as a sacrifice to their idols, to their gods, to their lords. And any leftover meat that would be left after that sacrifice would be sold in the marketplace for people to be able to purchase and people to be able to eat. And these believers that knew Christ as Savior and had knowledge 
that there is only one true living God and that had come to the understanding in their knowledge of Christ and what Christ has accomplished and who Christ is. They came to this understanding that their eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols, these leftovers, uh, really wasn't something that was uh, troubling or wrong for them to do in Christ. And Paul references that. He actually references that in verse 8. Or, I'm sorry, where he says, uh, let me find it. Verse 8, for food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Paul's making a clear statement here. The issue of eating is not an issue at all here. But there was a, an understanding amongst these believers that had this knowledge that it was permissible for them to have this meat that was previously offered to idols and it wasn't defiling them, it wasn't destructive for them, and it wasn't hurting their testimony or relationship with Christ. But there were some among them whose conscience, because of past association with offering food sacrificed to idols, would not allow themselves to eat this meat. And Paul references that in this passage, and he is going to answer a question in regards to this. And he's going to get into the detail of this as we look at the passage this morning. But Paul does something very interesting, and I think this is what's so neat, is that he says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge, verse 1, and this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Before Paul ever gets into the direct answer as to whether or not it is okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. Before he can go any further, Paul lays out two really important truths. He first lays out the reality that knowledge without love puffs up. Knowledge without love can be very boastful. And it can make people think pretty good about themselves. It can make them think of themselves maybe more highly than they ought to. Have you ever found yourself in that position? Where because of your increase in knowledge, you thought you were pretty special or pretty intelligent or had something over on someone. I, I feel like this is the case all the time. And I, I was one of these individuals in particular with those that are studying for ministry. They go off to Bible college and after their Bible college for one semester, they come back and they're ready to instruct all of the church on what they're doing wrong. Because you feel like you have this little bit of knowledge and now you're ready to take on the world. Uh, I think the same is true in any field, right? When we have a field of study or something that we take in or we participate in, we think we got it. Uh, one of my daughters just got her learner's permit in driving, and she's ready to go uh, as it relates to driving everywhere. Uh, she's ready to go, and I think it's sometimes because she thinks she might have it down a little bit better than she does. And, uh, but knowledge so often for all of us can make us think of ourselves as ready, as prepared, as doing all of the things correctly. And Paul's saying that here. He's like, listen, we all have this knowledge. He's writing to these believers that are asking this question because they know the truth concerning Christ. They know that this is something that in Christ there's freedom to do. And Paul says we all possess knowledge, but this knowledge puffs up. Knowledge without love puffs up. We have to be careful in regards to how we understand this and how we apply this. Because knowledge can be a very good thing when it leads to good and proper understanding and therefore proper implementation for the glory of God. But knowledge can be a dangerous thing when it's simply to cause our heads to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. I think the prime example of this would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees who had all of this knowledge of the law of God all of this knowledge of God, and yet would be described by Jesus as whitewashed tombs. 
that looked great on the exterior, but on the inside there was nothing there. He called them sepulchers, tombs, understanding that they had knowledge, but they did not have love. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I had an opportunity to participate in a wedding yesterday that was just an incredible time together. An amazing couple and, uh, that loved the Lord and uh, so excited to see um, a husband and wife come together that love Christ and that want to honor Christ. And had an opportunity to read 1 Corinthians 13 in this wedding yesterday. And listen to what Paul says about love. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing, Paul says. Let's process that for a minute. He says, if I can speak in the tongues of men and angels and have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. See, Paul begins this section in regards to the question that they were asked by helping them to understand a truth that they needed to get. They had knowledge, but they weren't demonstrating love. Knowledge simply puffs up. When it does not have love. But he also says knowledge with love builds up. Knowledge with love builds up. Again, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Paul's making this abundantly clear. The knowledge that they had in Christ, the knowledge that they had of the freedom that they had in Christ was not knowledge that should be used in arrogance or for their own building up, but rather they should be demonstrating love with the knowledge that they possess. You know, we can do one of two things with knowledge, with understanding. We can do one of two things when we grow and learn. We can use it to build others up or we could use it to tear others down. We could use it in love or we can use it in pride. I remember one of my earliest memories in school. I don't remember how old I was. I just remember this happening. I was very young. I remember being in like an art class where we were coloring a picture. And I remember being in that class coloring a picture and I had colored this picture all different directions with my crayon. So you can imagine if you have a piece of paper and you take a crayon and you start coloring one way, then you color the other way, then you color the other way. At the end result, unless it's a parent looking at their child that thinks it's incredible, it looks like a mess. And so I called the teacher over, I remember, and said, hey, I don't understand, wasn't this way. I don't know how I said it as a kid, but I was relating the fact that I don't know why this looks so bad. And I remember to this day, and I don't remember what teacher it was, I just remember I was very young, and that teacher saying, hey, why don't you try coloring all one direction and see how much of a difference that makes? Now, I don't remember how old I was. I might have been in kindergarten. It might have been pre-kindergarten. I don't remember. But I remember the instruction of that teacher when it comes to coloring. And I do not exaggerate this when I tell you, if I'm ever coloring a picture with my kids, that comes to my mind. Color all one direction because it just looks better that way. I have no idea who that teacher is. I can't remember her name, but I remember her instruction. I thought, what a prime example of an opportunity for someone who has knowledge and understanding 
to give instruction to someone who does not that I remember 35 or more years later. Paul's relating the fact to these believers, you have knowledge. That's great. But understand your knowledge without love, your knowledge without a demonstration of love is just there and it puffs you up. But it should build others up. Now it's important that we get this because Paul's establishing this reality because he's wanting them to begin to have their focus not on themselves but on others. On the needs of brothers and sisters that were even amongst them. And you will get the the picture that there was an attitude, almost a prideful, arrogant attitude on the part of the Corinthian believers when it came to eat uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols, which I know we all deal with today. He, he was giving this understanding and this perspective that their knowledge that puffed them up, their arrogance in that, their liberty in that was destructive to believers whose conscience would not allow them to participate in these things. So again, the issue question Paul's addressing, is it okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Before we can go any further, after Paul shares those two things, he then goes again, verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, and I kind of put like food offered to idols almost as another caveat, because he again doesn't specifically yet answer that question. Instead, he informs them of a foundational truth. Look at verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many lowercase gods and many lowercase lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul reminds them of this foundational truth. Yet there is but one God. The Father, from whom all things exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It's a foundational truth that Paul wants them to realize and embrace. It's a foundational truth that you and I have to realize and embrace. There is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There's but one Savior that we live for. We live for him. There is but one God, true living God, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So even in this foundational truth that Paul lays out, he brings to their mind and brings to the forefront of their mind that their very existence is not for themselves, it is for God. He brings to their mind and their understanding that the very reason they exist is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they are to be setting themselves for him. It's not about themselves. There's no room for ego, for mere human beings when we view ourselves in the proper light of who our almighty God is. And Paul's establishing this foundational truth. And as a follower of Christ, you and I know the one true living God. Let that sink in today. We know the one true living God. We know the creator and sustainer of the universe. As a follower of Christ, you personally know the one true savior of the world. And you are known by him. It's incredible. And I love that Paul is establishing this as a foundational truth because before he ever gets to the question in regards to meat, sacrifice, to idols, Paul establishes a foundation that there is but one, because there is but one true living God. 
And he's the one that we should serve. He's the one that we live for. And he's the one that should affect and have an impact on all that we do in every area of our lives. So I believe Paul's establishing these foundational truths. Knowledge without love puffs up. Knowledge with love builds up. There is but one true living God. Uh, we serve one true living God, one true living Savior. And Paul establishes these things. And so again, the question he's asking, is it okay to eat food offered to idols? I believe now we get to the answer as Paul details this in verses 7 through 13. After speaking about these things, he says, However, not all possess this knowledge but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul will go on to explain to them that food doesn't commend us to God, uh, that whether we eat or we don't eat, it's no matter before God. We're no worse off if we do. We're no worse off if we don't. But he helps them and establishes for them the reality that for some of them, as brothers and sisters in Christ, this would be an area that would cause sin for them in their conscience. And so therefore, if that is the case, they should abstain. So what's the, what's the answer really that he gives? Well, for some, yes, and for some, no. It's a matter of conscience before the Lord. Is it okay to eat food offered to idols? For some, yes. For some, no. This is a matter of conscience before the Lord. Paul makes it clear. Again, verse 8, it's not a problem. But in verses 9 to 13, he says, well, it can be a problem, though. And so it's an individual conscience before the Lord situation here. Paul wants the love that these believers have for one another to be a greater priority and a greater driving force in their lives than their individual freedoms. And I think we can't miss that here. Understand that. Paul wants the love that they should have for one another to be a greater driving force for them than their individual liberties or freedoms. They should be valuing one another above their individual freedoms in Christ. They should be loving one another beyond their love for their freedoms that they have in Christ. And so this is Paul's answer. So why does this matter? You look at this and be like, well, I don't know when the last time anybody offered me meat sacrifice to idols, and that was a struggle. I mean, that's not really something that we're dealing with today. But why does this matter? Well, the same principles apply to us today as we seek to love and care for one another. And I believe the same principles apply to us today as we seek to live for God's glory with the freedom that we have in Christ. And whereas we might not have heard recently anybody offering us food sacrifice to idols, or we might not recently heard any believer say, hey, I'm really struggling today with eating that food that's sacrificed to idols. I don't know what to do. There are plenty of other areas when it comes to Christian liberty and freedom where this kind of struggle is prevalent, even in the church. There are a lot of issues or categories of Christian liberties that fall into what might be called gray areas for the believer in Christ. And as you can imagine, Christians are very passionate about their opinions and convictions in these areas. Let me give you just a few that at least at one point may have been considered controversial and some that may be still today. Going to movie theaters to watch movies. Listening to the radio when Christian radio first came out because the devil is the prince of the power of the air. Dancing, playing cards, poker, drinking a glass of wine or having a beer in moderation, body piercings, long hair for men, short hair for women, 
Women wearing pants or slacks, as they were called. Tattoos. Going to a bar. Listening to non-Christian music. Eating meat. Sacrificed idols. These are all things that have fallen into the category of what many would consider to be areas of liberty in regards to our relationship with Christ that the Bible does not necessarily specifically forbid in all cases, although there are principles for many of these things in God's word. So why does this matter? Again, because the same principles apply to us today as we seek to love and care for one another, and the same principles apply to us today as we seek to live for God's glory with the freedom that we have in Christ. In each of the examples that I shared just a bit earlier, so often the argument used to support opposition to so many areas of Christian liberty is the argument that Christians are not to offend the weaker brother. And that is true. We are not to offend the weaker brother, but we really are not to be purposely seeking to offend any brother or sister in Christ, not just the weaker brother. Right? We're not to purposely seek to offend any believer in Christ as a brother or sister in him. But what I want to do in our remaining time this morning is see how Paul explained the weaker brother argument for abstaining from certain liberties that Christians have in the case before us in regards to meat sacrifice to idols. And remember again what Paul said as he established this reality that the issue of eating meat was not an issue before God for these believers. This was not something that God had labeled as sinful or God had outright forbidden in his word or in his instruction. And so the starting point we have to establish is the Christian liberties, quote-unquote Christian liberties that I'm speaking of, are those areas where the Bible does not specifically forbid. And yet there are many Christians who uh, believe that no Christian should participate in these things. So what exactly is the weaker brother? Because the argument is used over and over and over again. What exactly is meant by the weaker brother? So let's look at the weaker brother explained. First, the weaker brother is one who does not have the same level of knowledge and understanding of the freedom that they have in Christ. Paul makes this abundantly clear. Verse 7 and verse 11. However, not all possess this knowledge... But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Paul makes something abundantly clear. The weaker brother in this context was the individual that knows Christ and was not possessing the same amount of knowledge and understanding that these brothers whose conscience was clear in participating in the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, they did not have that same knowledge. And because of that, their conscience was being weak. And therefore, participating in these activities would cause them to sin. So Paul's defining the weaker brother first as the one who doesn't have the same level of knowledge and understanding. And so therefore, participating in such activities would be sinful for them. Because they would be violating their conscience before the Lord. Let me give you an example. When my family, when my dad came to know Christ as Savior, uh, when my mother came to know Christ as Savior, when I came to know Christ as Savior, everything was new to us about God's word. I was just entering my teenage years. My mom and dad were fully into adulthood, obviously, by that time. And they had lived their lives. And so after coming to know Christ... Everything about our former life or the way that we lived was brought into question in their minds of what is appropriate and not appropriate to do before the Lord. 
And so there were a lot of very strict things that initially we embraced and held on to because we didn't have knowledge of what God's word says concerning many things that today we willfully participate in and do because they are not uh, that which commends us before God or destroys us before God. They are neutral things, but we didn't have knowledge to understand. And so one of the first churches that we went to uh, you know, taught and they forbid you from doing all kinds of things that when we were first saved and we didn't know, and we had no knowledge, we were like, okay, this must be what God's expectations are and this must be what God says. But the more that we understood and read scripture and the more our knowledge and understanding of the word of God grew, we realized that these weren't necessarily biblical truths, they were personal preferences and so we understood that there were liberties or freedoms that we had in Christ that we previously did not know about. Paul says the weaker brother is one who does not have the same level of knowledge and understanding of their freedom in Christ. He says that in verse 7. He says that in verse 11. If his conscience is weak, so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, you are sinning against your brother. His conscience is weak. His understanding is not there as yours is. And so instead of destroying this brother by participating in your liberty, love him by abstaining from your liberty. That's the weaker brother brother that they're considering there. The weaker brother explained. Number two, the weaker brother is one whose conscience, because of past association or guilt, limits their freedom in Christ. You had believers who had come to know Christ that were saved out of these pagan rituals, out of these pagan sacrifices. And so they, at one point in their lives, participated in these pagan sacrifices. They participated in this eating of meat, sacrifice to idols. They believed that there was truth to this sacrifice, to these false gods. And so their conscience was destroying them as a believer in Christ now to be doing something that once characterized their lives before knowing Christ. And so how would that make sense in today's culture, in today's day and age? Well, think of a brother or sister in Christ who has a past addiction or battle with alcohol abuse. We can look at the word of God and say the word of God is abundantly clear. You are not to be drunk with wine. You are not to be under the control of any wine or beer or alcohol. Uh, and we would look at the word of God and say, man, it would be a very difficult case to build that it is sinful for a believer to have a drink of wine, a glass of wine. But clearly the word of God makes it abundantly clear. You are not to get drunk. We could preach that. We could proclaim that. There are many people, some probably sitting here, who think having even an ounce of alcohol is a sin against God. That is a very difficult case to build according to Scripture. Clearly, you're not to be drunk, but to have a sip of alcohol is a very difficult case according to Scripture. In particular, when there's different commands given in God's Word about this. And so what do we do with this? Well, the weaker brother, in our understanding of how this applies today, would be the brother or sister in Christ who has a past addiction or abuse of alcohol. It would not make sense for that brother or sister in Christ who has been saved out of that lifestyle and out of that area of sin in their lives to even dabble with, to even take a sip of alcohol for them. And so out of a love and care for the weaker brother, I will never, in the presence of a brother or sister who has struggled with an area of sin, prop up my freedom in Christ to participate in that area. That's the weaker brother. It's the one who directly, by our participation in liberty, we cause to sin. And in doing so, not only cause them to sin, we too sin against Christ, Paul says in this passage. 
The weaker brother explained. Third is the one who at the influence of other believers could fall back into sinful association that once characterized their lives before Christ. Again, verses 10 and 11, Paul references this. He says in verse 10, If anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? If his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, Paul says, listen, you who have knowledge, you know that there's freedom to do this. But what about the brother or sister who sees you who have freedom to eat eating, and as a result of them seeing you eating, they think it's okay for me to eat, but their conscience does not allow them before God to do it. And they do it anyhow because of your liberty. He says, you've caused them to sin, and you've sinned against your brother. Another example of this would be a brother or sister who has a past history of gambling, a gambling addiction. They have made poor decisions, and before knowing Christ or even in Christ, they've made decisions that has destroyed their lives, their families, because of their gambling addiction. You say, man, it's no problem to play cards. I'm going to invite some people over to play cards. And, and if a weaker brother, one who's like, man, I can't play cards. I have this past history with this gambling. He's like, hey, no, get over it. Just come over, and, and we'll do this. And as a result of that, it ignites within this brother, sister, a love for something that once characterized their lives that was destructive. And as a result of your liberty or my liberty, we cause them to fall back into sin. That is the example of the weaker brother. In each of the three explanations, the weaker brother is one who will be directly influenced to violate their conscience before the Lord, which will cause them to sin. That is what is meant by the weaker brother. So let me just explain what the weaker brother is not. Okay, first... The weaker brother is not the mature telling the less mature, you don't have freedom in Christ to do that because I don't like it. You understand this is different. It is not the mature telling the less mature, because I don't like what you're doing, you don't have the freedom to do that because you're offending me. And the Bible says not to offend the weaker brother. That is not the weaker brother. Here's the reality for us. Just because we don't like something personally, it does not mean that God doesn't like it. (laughs) Okay? We have to understand that. Just because we personally have an issue with something, it doesn't mean God has issue with it. Paul actually addresses this right out in the open in verse 8 when he says, listen, food does nothing here. You can eat or not. It doesn't really matter before God because there's freedom for this. But when we're dealing with a brother or sister who will be caused to sin because of their past association with this, then we are sinning against God. Then we must abstain. But it is not the mature telling the less mature, because I don't like what you're doing, you don't have freedom to do that. Number two, it's not the legalist telling the less conservative Christian, you don't have freedom in Christ to do that because I think it's wrong. Don't miss this, okay? There is a huge difference between I think it's wrong and God says it's wrong, okay? Sometimes... In our ego, and I'll just call it what it is, in in our prideful arrogance, we think that we might know better than God on certain issues. And we want to restrict others in the areas that we ourselves restrict ourselves, whether God says it or not. And we have to understand this, that, that knowledge could puff us up. Knowledge could make ourselves think of ourselves as more highly than we ought to. And there's a big difference between you shouldn't do that because I think it's wrong and you should abstain from that brother, sister in Christ because God says it's wrong. And sometimes we can confuse the two, but the weaker brother is not the legalist telling the less conservative Christian you don't have freedom in Christ to do that because I think it's wrong. And third, it's not the offended telling the offender you don't have freedom in Christ to do that because you're offending me. Listen, folks, we're not to purposely be seeking to offend our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
We should never be seeking to purposely offend our brothers and sisters in Christ. But can I also share with you, we also should not be proactively seeking for ways to be offended either. And sometimes we can be very guilty of that. Of that. I don't know what that was. That. The weaker brother principle is not the offended telling the offender, you don't have freedom in Christ to do that because you're offending me. It is not our personal responsibility to police the level and extent of Christian liberty that our brothers and sisters in Christ feel the freedom to participate in. Let me just say that again. It is not our personal responsibility to police the level and extent of Christian liberty that our brothers and sisters in Christ feel the freedom to participate in. If you find yourself as a believer in Christ consumed with a desire to please the liberty your brothers and sisters in Christ exercise, stop it. Replace that desire and preoccupation with service to the Lord. Love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and personal examination and growth in the Lord. That is far better. Now what about when you're truly dealing with a situation of the weaker brother, the one who truly could be caused to sin by your liberty? One, demonstrate love and care rather than puffed up knowledge and condemnation. Two, be willing to limit one's own freedom out of care and love for your brother or sister in Christ. I think this passage is a fantastic reminder again and again that our living, our decisions, our choices are not about us. We serve the one true living God and he's called us to love one another. That should simply matter more. I hope that's helpful for you. As we close this morning, we're going to sing a closing song together. And as the band comes, I just want to read and close with what Paul's words were in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Would you just think about these commands that Paul gives in Colossians 3? And how much differently our lives would be lived if we truly sought to be obedient to what Paul says here. Colossians 3, 12 to 17, Paul says, Put on then... As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.